as you realize this from the presentation, that this is a highly complex historic and legal issue. And uh, I tried to write the flyer for this today's uh, session, and um, I was a total failure at it. Uh, and Dave Shepard made sure that it would not be mine. And um, so I, um, of course, uh, uh, Dr. Nowlin wrote this out, and I was so impressed with it that I, I didn't even know which word to delete, and I didn't want to leave because this thing is going to be on my refrigerator door for quite a long time. Um, now, I, a few th thank yous are, are indicated. We have to thank the University of Lethbridge for their financial donations and for their publicity. We have to thank Shaw for presenting the, the, the main uh, speaker's uh, presentation, and they do that every day at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and at 9.30 in the evening, every day. Um, we have to thank Annalise. Poor Annalise is never mentioned. And she does the, she does the, she does the audio recording, and I don't know how many other things she does. Um, thank you, Annalise. Finish your lunch, please. Okay. Uh, we thank Great Bake Catering for the wonderful meal. Incidentally, uh, there's another trade coming out, and if people want to buy a portion for three dollars, you're welcome to do that. And uh, special thanks to Dave Mel, uh, maybe, Mabel, Mabel, from the Lesbridge Herald. Now, he does a wonderful job. We thank him so much for his almost weekly efforts. And um, now he uh, confided in me, he says, apparently the type of questions you ask and the quality of your questions is very important to his reporting. So please think up some really good questions. And, 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 and not so long, just keep them short, you know. Uh, so, uh, so whatever we say is, is relevant. Now, next week, on um, May the 1st, which is Wednesday, there's a special SACPA session at um, the, uh, the public library. Home Reno, if a quoted price sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And then the next day, Thursday, right here, the title is, You Have the Power to End Sexual Violence. So that's on next week. Uh, so now we are ready for questions. And um, Dr. Nowlin, I ask you to come up, please, and you will be answering their questions. I certainly will not be. Uh, so let's... Let's have it, gentlemen and ladies and gentlemen. The, the shorter and the more questions, the better. My name is Mike McKaig. Uh, thank you for your very informative uh, presentation. Uh, my question is quite short and simple. Could you comment on <coughs> We've, we hear lots about the Indian Act uh, not being good and trying to change it or get rid of it. Could you comment, is there, what is in, would be involved in changing it and what would it be replaced with and, it, and would it require a constitutional change? Okay. Um, 
Your, it's your last question that kind of threw me as to, because I was thinking, I mean, I was ready to answer mm -hmm. it kind of more simplistically, but uh, um, as to whether mm -hmm. to get rid of the Indian Act would not require um, a constitutional, uh, it would not require a constitutional change. It's, um, it's a piece of federal legislation, uh, nothing more. Uh, I guess I was thinking for a minute about the British North America Act. Um, no, it's a piece of federal uh, legislation that can be abolished um, basically on a dime, figuratively speaking. Um, but to be a bit more realistic about it, um, if some of you might, some of you might well recall, uh, in 1969, uh, Pierre Trudeau's government uh, did actually uh, propose abolishing the Indian Act. Uh, I think at the time it was called the White Paper, and um, and uh, Indigenous groups across the country uh, re reacted quite strongly against that. And and I, you know, in terms of my my more recent kind of research into these issues, is I've kind of come to understand that the concern was generally that um, Trudeau, Pierre Trudeau's uh, plan was more kind of uh, along the lines of assimilation, like you'd get rid of the Indian Act and, and, and so you'd get rid of that kind of paternalistic kind of top-down legislating uh, about indigenous people, but by the same token, uh, there'd been these generations of these reserves and, um, and, the, and, there, and there was kind of no vision as to kind of how, how indigenous people were, to, were, were supposed to kind of start to relate, say, in, in, in the rest of Canadian in life, but, but to kind of pick it up to, to this century, um, the Indian Act, as far as I know, is being, is being abolished uh, through treaty making in, in British Columbia on a, on a piecemeal, uh, on a kind of a case-by-case -case basis. So I'd, I'd alluded, uh, I think I'd alluded to these uh, modern treaties, maybe I hadn't, but, uh, but apropos of a case called the Chilcotin case in 2014, where, which is the first case where a, a small indigenous group did actually uh, get, did acquire land, the Supreme Court of Canada did, did confirm that they owned that land. That put the that set the provincial British Columbia Crown right back into kind of realizing, wow, there's a lot of these claims out there, and we could, for the first time ever, they realized we could lose them. They had never lost one before. So now, as we speak, that our BC's Crown is negotiating treaties with many with many Indigenous peoples who have land claims, outstanding land claims in BC. And some of, those, some of those treaties being negotiated are literally putting in the treaty, um, uh, the Indian Act will not apply to us forever again. So that's one way that the Indian Act is being ousted. As to why we can't just like say as, as a kind of on a vote uh, uh, in terms of electing a government that says I'll get rid of the Indian Act, that could actually happen. Like I say, in a real, it could happen legalistically very easily. I just don't think, I just don't think um, we're there that in terms of relationships between indigenous people and, and non-indigenous people. Hi, my name's Dave Shepard, and uh, thanks very much for the uh, enlightening talk. Um, I'm, when the Liberals came to power, they promised to adopt the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, and uh, sometime later, about a year later or so, Jody Wilson-Raybould announced that they couldn't do that because it was incompatible with Canadian law. I think that's sort of the way she put it. I was wondering why you thought that might be, that they said that. Yeah, so okay, so I, di I didn't know mm -hmm. that um, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould had, had done that. And um, uh, so for some of you that may know that Canada originally opted out of that, uh, like I say, UN, uh, D to, to, to abbreviate UN DRIP, United Nations Declaration of the Rights of Indigenous People. Um, I don't know why she, I don't know why she, I don't like, 
I don't know what are the necessary uh, incompatibilities, uh, say, uh, with, with um, say, the current state of, say, Canadian law and, and, and an international document like um, UNDRIP, but, but let me put it this way, like, um, the UN Declaration of Rights of Indigenous People contains many provisions kind of, uh, kind of confirming and asserting um, Indigenous rights to self-government, to self-determination, and there are several around economic development. They're, very, they're, they're quite specific around um, the need to obtain consent, okay? So kind of that was almost what I was alluding to at the very end of, of, of my um, talk, which is that where this is going is that like UN DRIP is probably going to become an actual part of Canadian law. Like if that bill C-262 passes, okay, it does embed uh, UN DRIP into it. And so what, that, what, what maybe was going on there, to, to kind of get to the point of your question, I guess, maybe what's going on there is a concern that the UN Declaration of Rights of Ind Indigenous People gives more kind of um, more legal authority to Indigenous people in terms of rights, particularly self-government, and, and self-government is kind of like around sovereignty uh, than, than, than currently the Canadian government is comfortable with. So even I've had the same kind of interest in your question, which is that, which is like once Bill C-262 does become law, if it becomes law, I think we're gonna see another layer of the landscape change in Canadian law where suddenly the federal government really does have to start kind of um, seriously taking into consideration um, Aboriginal claims of sovereignty and self-determination, self which are a little bit more than rights and title. Maureen Hawkins, thank you again for your talk. Um, my question is, and I have a very bad memory for names, so I hope you'll know. Uh, in a lot of the discussion of the pipeline, um, one of the tribes where the chief had given permission, the elders said that the chief has no right because they are the traditional elders and they should be in charge of the well-being of the land. Do they have any legal standing? And would the incorporation of the UN um, uh, into that bill uh, affect their rights? The short answer, unfortunately, is, is I don't know, I don't know in terms of the legal, like the legal kind of authority of say of elders vis-a-vis -a, -vis -a, vis -a, vis a chief. I don't, I don't kind of, I don't actually have any particular legalistic knowledge of, of those kind of internal, you know, legal political uh, dynamics. So I can't, I can't answer. I, again, that's a good question, and I and I and again, I have to just admit that I don't actually know those those know those particulars. I know the Indian Act puts puts government like does actually govern the 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 the, the band's politics that way, the management. But I don't know that specific question. Um, I, I I'm sorry about that. Thank you for your presentation. <clears throat> Avatanis, beneficiary of Treaty Seven, which we call in part. Southern Alberta. How many laws have been made by Aboriginal peoples to call Canadian laws? And the next question is, why do we not go back to the cause of all this, which is the doctrine of discovery? The doctrine of discovery basically destroyed humanity and we still practice it in Canada and in many other countries. Even the white extremists have a right under law to be there because it's a doctrine of discovery. 
Thank you. So the first question, um, <coughs> the first question was around, and I just want to make sure I understand, like, are, do Aboriginal peoples, for example, make laws that, that are Canadian law or become Canadian law? I don't, um, I, I don't, I'm not, I, I have difficulty kind of contextualize that question. Like, I, think, I think what I'm getting at is, from my, my understanding is apart from, say, uh, reserve, reserve kind of banned politics that are, that are meant to be, I believe, exclusive to the ban, uh, my experience as a lawyer, for example, is defending Aboriginal people on, on claims of right to, to be able to fish, hunt, et cetera, or, or to land. And to the extent that they are making any laws, it's essentially that they are making claims to, to their rights, and one, to, to a treaty interpretation, um, to the honor of the crown, to, to, to the crown's obligations. And those, those particular claims just keep kind of developing the state of the Canadian common law. One thing that I didn't actually say that was implicit in my talk is that when we refer to Canadian law this way, like apart from the Indian Act, for example, and various provincial laws, um, the, the great bulk of, 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 of say, Canadian slash Aboriginal law is made by judges. It's actually judge-made law. It's, you'll, you'll find very little of any of this in statute law. So it's judges that kind of have carved out the entire kind of domain of Aboriginal law. So, so I'm not quite sure how to answer your first question, and I, and I apologize for that. Um, as for your second question, I'm not, I, I heard you say the doctrine of discovery, and, and, I, and, if, and kind of if you're asking how that applies, or um, the doctrine of discovery does not apply in, in Canada. Like, um, it's, um, f well, and first of all, if it did, um, it's, 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 it's got that peculiar aspect to it, which is that, is that North America was not discovered by Europeans, for example. It just simply, simply wasn't. I mean, it wasn't discovered by them. So um, uh, that's the whole point of saying when, when Europeans arrived, that's the whole point of the Supreme Court of Canada, saying, you know, indigenous people were there. So, uh, but, but as far as the actual technicality of that doctrine, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, apply, like in, in the sense that uh, what, what, um, what governs, what, what overarchingly, in an overarching way, what kind of governs Aboriginal law is assertions of sovereignty in, in Canada. It's the Royal Proclamation. It was essentially the, the beginning of the assertion of sovereignty by, by the king. And those are the issues that are going to kind of play themselves out as we go in, as, as we move along in this century. Whether whether that's a, a legalistic, uh, whether that's whether that's a legally valid thing to do for the King of England to assert sovereignty. And what my reference to uh, through the Indian Act was, in a sense, it's not quite the same thing, but it's but it's kind of similar. You've, you've actually got a democratically, you know, you've got you've got a new government, and they just, they've decided that they're going to create laws in relation to Indigenous people. So. So wherever the doctrine of discovery might apply, like for example, perhaps in America or whatever it is, uh, my understanding is, is that according to the common law, like that, that doctrine has not, has been, our judges have said it does not apply in, in Canada because of things like assertions of sovereignty by the Royal, by the Royal Proclamation. Uh, thank you very much for your presentation. Uh, Maria Fitzpatrick. Um, I worked in corrections for over 30 years and I was familiar with the Marshall case and I was appalled as somebody who worked in corrections that that had occurred to begin with. And uh, what it made me do was look back at history and look at uh, the offenders that I worked with in corrections and uh, that assertion of sovereignty, I think, was more an assertion of superiority over others. And again, I'm appalled at that kind of behavior because I was raised to respect uh, everybody. And um, I think 
that won't change until we as a, as a people in this country uh, decided to change. But that's just my opinion on it. Uh, but my question is about consultation and consent. So I've just spent four years in the Alberta legislature and uh, we were uh, beaten up uh, right at the beginning over Bill 6 about consultation. And what we did do is we went back to fix it and we did, and we consulted and listened to what people provided. But in fact, consultation has nothing to do with agreeing with what anybody mm -hmm. says to you. So um, I think uh, bringing a process in that isn't just about consultation, but consultation and a consensus of opinion uh, to fix things. So I'd just like your, um, your feedback on what you think about that. Well, yeah, Thank I mean, you. I guess just as a general observation then, um, I have a little bit of limited, I have some limited experience as a lawyer that, that is really consistent with, with yours in terms, like I've represented, I've represented two or three um, indigenous bands um, who have been fighting for, you know, typically fishing rights, but one was a land, lands claimed. And that's kind of the complaint, that's the similar complaint that I get in terms of consultation with the government. But, but to go back to that pipeline case where I kind of gave you the reference to the, to the bigger, you know, that more high profile decision, uh, I guess time seems to fly, but it seems like a year ago or so. Um, what the Supreme Court of Canada, why, why the federal government lost that was on this issue of consultation. And if you got down to the nitty gritty of that case, it came down to a couple of points. And, and I think there was fairly, like what, you go through levels depending on the severity of the impact of the development. Like so, so I think that one had like levels like stage three, four, et cetera. But the actual, the, the, the pointed part of the decision why the government lost was is that it made your point, okay? It basically said that it's, it's one thing to kind of sit at the table with Indigenous people and to kind of have a conversation in a sense and to kind of listen to what the Indigenous people are saying. But if you're not actually taking that seriously, okay? Like if you're actually not, if you're not actually taking anything away from that and modifying or, you know, accommodating in terms of your own policy or whatever, then that's not consultation. And that was definitely the message of that case. I think it's the Tsleil-Waututh case and so so I'm saying that's kind of the same kind of complaint but what I th where I think we're going with that especially in light of a case like that is I think the government is 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 basically going to have to just ramp that up a bit more and and take that seriously and I mean the Supreme Court candidate really is saying have meaningful dialogue you know and where we get to in terms of consent okay is I think where the rubber meets the road is that really really fine or gray area however you want to put it where at some point, the government might really genuinely, sincerely feel that it's done all the consultation it can do, but it still is not kind of like, um, it's, not getting, it's not getting any kind of accommodation. And so what the issue that gets raised, for example, by non-Indigenous people, for example, is do the Indigenous people have a veto, okay? Like, can they literally say, we are not consenting to that, and that pipeline is not going ahead? And currently, they do not, okay? So, uh, so that essentially what happens is the government simply just takes a very kind of either a political risk and with, a, with maybe a big economic component. But, but I think, for example, that big last case, I think it was called the Suela Tooth case, um, that pretty much sends the message to the government, get doing this better, uh, if, if, that, if that helps. Yeah. Answer. Thank you uh, for the very interesting presentation. In, in Wallace Many Fingers, I live across the river. Uh, are Aboriginal rights and Canadian law reconcilable? 
I, I think the Canadian judges have tried to do that post-patriation. Uh, it's unfortunate that uh, the First Nations have had to go to court, spend millions of dollars, I mean hiring lawyers, <laughs> um, to define rights. And it's, it's uh, what do you think about, you know, a, someone from another country, another state of mind saying, these are your rights. This, the Supreme Court saying, you know, uh, this is what existing rights are. This is what um, uh, Canadian constitutional common law is on the subject. They're defining. One side seems to be defining how the other side responds, how they're able to respond. And that's more political than legal. I wanted to get your views on how that imbalance might be addressed. Yeah, no, I, I, and, I, and I, I agree to you. And, and I, I think, you know, a few minutes ago, I was trying to make that point that one thing I hadn't stated in expre expressly, right, which is that Aboriginal rights are a kind of, are essentially a product of the Supreme Court of Canada. They, there's no question that's the case. And that's not, and those are not Indigenous courts. Like those, indi those Indigenous, the Indigenous people claiming rights are not having their rights claims heard by Indigenous tribunals. So to be a, maybe be a bit practical about your question, um, one thing I've always not understood, right, is that there are there are treaties that are that have, that have in fact uh, years ago been uh, developed, co comprehensive treaties that have been signed. Some that are coming down the kind of coming coming along the line that give more and more jurisdiction and, and lawmaking jurisdiction to Indigenous people, kind of to, to govern themselves, like in, and to even enact laws, like and, and, and absolutely outside of the Indian Act, independent of the Indian Act. But what I'm always interested in is they always stop short of things like criminal law, for example. Uh, and uh, and other and, and so there are other facets. So, so yes, um, our common law, our judges have seemed to kind of carve out this divide where we will give indigenous people kind of limited sovereignty, you know, some some kind of restrictive kind of uh, domain of self-governance. But ultimately, you know, they must still appeal to the Supreme Court of Canada, which is a foreign uh, judicial system to indigenous people. And and I think that kind of day of reckoning is is it's. You know, some, some, some Indigenous scholars have said we simply need some Indigenous um, uh, members on the Supreme Court of Canada, and that might well be, you know, a, a, some kind of solution for the moment. But I don't know that it's the I don't know that it's the kind of the right solution or the, or the best solution. So I think, you know, what what I think might be ha what might happen is kind of certainly in British Columbia, some of these land claims play themselves out. Maybe we will see, you know, maybe we will see a treaty, for example, that one day actually does give like a full jurisdiction to uh, to a, to an Indigenous court. For, for every kind of one of its affairs, you know, like, a, and, and, and that treaty would have that built into it, plus all the economic development, plus all the symbiotic, you know, relationships between the crown and management. So, so you, could see, you could see that coming, which, be, which would be some, some step along that line. But, I, but your point is well taken. Like, none of these rights, the, all these rights are given to average people by Supreme Court of Canada judges. Okay, my name is Rebecca Minigray Horses. Um, my first question is, um, has the Royal Proclamation ever been rescinded or, um, you know, has a law overtaken it, you know, that it doesn't um, apply today to Canadian law? Yeah, so, so it's a great question and, and it's a complicated question. And so, and it, so, it's, so yeah, it's a good question and it's, and it's complicated. Um, uh, I think up until up until that section there, for example, Section 25 in the uh, in the Constitution Act, 
there was a lot of debate about whether it, uh, what, what was its kind of contemporary uh, legal, uh, legal uh, effect in, in, in Canada. And I have to admit, like, uh, I'm not kind of a, I don't, I don't have my fingers on the pulse of where the state of the art of that research and that kind of, uh, that kind of like, uh, uh, legal knowledge is at the moment. But, but, I, but one can safely say, for example, okay, and, and courts have said since, since, since 1982, that given that that got put in, in the Constitution Act, right, like that, there's no question that it is still alive and, and well. Like in, so so it, it has complete legal effect. It's right there in, in the supreme law of the land. So it is alive and well, but I'm saying prior to that, there was quite a bit of controversy. Um, another issue that I haven't kind of like, that I didn't uh, kind of expound upon at all was this idea of extinguishment. And I think that's kind of where, where we're going to. Like, so, so there's been hundreds of years, like since, since you know, the uh, 1600s and those treaties. And often when an, an indigenous person on a, say, uh, individually on behalf of a band brings an Aboriginal rights claim based on a treaty, the Crown might fight back hard and the Crown might say that treaty right was extinguished in 1860 whatever, 1850 because of this political development. You know, the government changed hands. So you get a lot of that, that discussion. But this one, um, this one is saying it's, it applies live and well. It, what it is, it's, it's an ambiguous, t it's, in, in, in my limited experience, it's an ambiguous legal document for Indigenous people because on the one hand, they can hold it firm in any court and say, you know, we have these hunting rights. Uh, we, we have the right not to be molested on our hunting grounds. And now those are hunting rights right there, constitutionally entrenched. So, so that's independent of any treaty or anything like that. It's right there. But by the same token, it is a, proc it is a royal decree that was imposed upon them in 1763. And it has that questionable, you know, uh, why was it imposed on them? It just happens to still be alive and well today. Mm -hmm. Okay. And the other thing that I wanted to uh, mention was that... Um, um, in terms of consultation or um, uh, engagement with Indigenous people, um, that always happens on the grounds of the government and, and the rules and policies of government as opposed to the Indigenous um, tribe that they're trying to consult with. Um, I did a thesis on, um, it was called Duty to Consult with First Nations in Canada. And one of the things that I mentioned in there was that indigenous people have to develop their own consultation practices, their own consultation um, 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 processes, um, and use their traditional laws, you know, to help them with that. Um, because when you go to the table um, with engagement and consultation with governments, they have all the rules, they have all the cases and everything, you know, that's there for them. Whereas the indigenous First Nation comes to the table with nothing. And so, you know, in my thesis, I mentioned uh, that one of the things that First Nations can do to help themselves was to develop their own processes with their traditional laws and, um, and develop their own consultation policies, practices, you know, before they go to the table. You know, so that you know they have a say in how this is going to go. Thank you. Yeah, and, and just to comment on that, maybe just um, um, is, is that um, another, so another thing I didn't mention, right? But it was mainly for time reasons. Is that is that almost every doctrine or every facet of of say comment like judge made, you know, Aboriginal law. Um, uh, emphasizes it's, it's a matter of fundamental policy that the Aboriginal perspective must be taken into account. It's, it's, it's part of the doctrine. And so on some level, like to, to kind of take what you're, take what you're saying, 
is I could imagine, for example, because I think of these things legalistically and how they play out in litigation, right? I could, I could imagine a complaint coming from an Indigenous group through consultation like that and pointing out, for example, to a judge that the Aboriginal or an Indigenous approach to consultation was not kind of respected or, to, and I could see a court saying it should have been, you know what I mean? It should be. So in theory, it's supposed to be, but I, but I take your point in practice, it's probably not been. Bev, <coughs> Bev Mundell-Apperstone, thank you very much, two, Chris. Uh, uh, two more short questions, please, e e except one. <laughs> Mine's not a question. You, when you uh, ended your talk, you said that there was something else you wanted to tell us about that last point, and I wonder if you've well, covered uh, it yet, or if you could tell us. Thank you. Well, I think if I... It was, it was about, it, it, was, it was really about Bill 266, Bill C262. And um, what I wanted to do, I'll do it really quickly, Klaus, because uh, I know that the clock's ticking here, but, but it goes to um, uh, some points some of you made. Um, I wanted to quote from, a, from an NDP, a Saskatoon MD, M, MP, uh, NDP M, MP, Sherry Benson, uh, uh, when, when the bill was passed, it had passed its third reading. And, uh, so uh, the bill was sponsored by somebody named, um, uh, I don't know, where are we here, pardon me. I know the last name is Saguenay, I'm just, I can't find his first name, but, but let me just quickly go on. Much as, I'm gonna quote from, from uh, Sherry Benson. Much has already been said about this bill, but as we embark on the third and final reading, I would like to pay tribute to the sponsor of this bill. At the age of, uh, at the age of seven, he was among 27 Cree children taken from their homes and their families to attend residential school in Latouque. He remained there for 10 years. After leaving residential school and returning to his home community, he attended a meeting on the negotiations between the Cree and government officials on constitutional and resource rights, which sparked his interest in pursuing a law degree. He attended a law school at Université de Québec à Montréal, and in 1989, he became the first Cree to receive a law degree in Quebec. This was the beginning of a, of a life's work representing and advancing the human rights and well-being of the Cree people. To continue quoting her, just last week, we celebrated the 100th anniversary of the right to vote being conferred on women. Some women anyway might, namely white middle-class propertyed women. The right to vote was not granted to indigenous people by the Canadian government until 1960. The laws of Canada are not in harmony with the United Nations Declaration of, on the Rights of Indigenous People. And despite Section 35 of our Constitution that recognizes and affirms indigenous rights, the government has not recognized those rights. Instead, um, government after government uh, has forced Indigenous people into lengthy, expensive court battles to have their constitutional rights respected and act upon. Um, I could have gone on, but I just wanted to read a little bit from, from that. My name is Mary Shillington. Thank you for your presentation. Um, a few, a couple of, a year and a half ago, we had James, James Daschuk, uh, a historian from, uh, Vic, uh, from Regina, come and speak about his his research and the book that he wrote, dis, uh, um, Discovery, uh, the Clearing the Plains. And he certainly would disagree with you that we aren't covering, uh, covering even now the doctrine of discovery. And so when you think about the lands and the, uh, the complication about lands and who owns them, like if that doctrine of discovery was not there, the Aboriginal people would own Canada and should be right. And, and we, we should be paying them rent all the time. Uh, so 
So what is, what's your reaction to that? Okay, so let me quickly then say, so that's actually what's about to kind of, that's what's potentially could happen in British Columbia, okay? Uh -huh. When you say like um, they, they might own that land, that's essentially what the situation is in British Columbia right now. There were no, there were very, only on Vancouver Island were there treaties. Oh, yeah. so, so basically British Columbia has none of these land transfers that we talked about. So what's been happening for, so for hundreds of years, indigenous people in British Columbia have been saying, we own this land in British mm -hmm. Columbia and they've lost for 300 years in the court, but they may be starting to win. Yeah. And it will be non-indigenous that are gonna start to pay the rent potentially of indigenous people who do successfully claim ownership of that land. Mm -hmm. but, but, there's, but realistically speaking, it's probably gonna end it's probably going to result in these these economic negotiations where where there's partnerships between the indigenous band and and crown representatives as to kind of make life commercially economically uh, residentially viable that, you know but yeah. but you're not far off yeah it's a tough situation and and we we are really um, how we're treating aboriginal people is disgraceful thank you Thank you all for the wonderful questions. Knut told me that I'm allowed to ask the question, and I'm going to take that privilege now. Uh, uh, Christopher, um, how many native, oh, I hate that word, uh, Aboriginal people are there in Canada? In, in, in how many reserves? And how many Métis people are there in Canada? Klaus, I wish you weren't uh, able to ask that last question because I can't answer it. Um, I don't know how many in Indigenous people are in Canada, but I know, but I believe that they represent four percent of the Canadian population generally. And I don't, and so I don't know. Maybe somebody has some idea what that number is. And I don't know what the percentage of Métis is, Métis. And I also don't know how many reserves on this. So that was a pretty uh, weak note for me to end on, Klaus. <laughs> <laughs> And, and then I have another burning point to make. Um, this goes back to my very good friend, Dave Shepard, who educated me on this issue. Um, he taught me that out east, uh, the British and the indigenous people were at war. But out west, we were never at war. Is, is that true? That is, that is true to an extent. Like, like yes, that's, that's true. Like, there were, there were actual, like, direct war, wars between the British and, uh, and various indigenous uh, tribes in, in the East Coast. That's absolutely true. Um, the West Coast, nothing like that. But, but if you, but for, like, some historians will be able to point out, for example, like, say, along, um, along the coast, uh, uh, um, Haida Gwaii and that, there were, there were genuine confrontations, you know, between uh, explorers coming up, up the West Coast, but, but not on the scale of like that, that. I'm sure you agree that Christopher Dr. Nolan deserves a big applause. 